Welcome to episode seven of No Blueprint, where we will be featuring Jay Soul, also known as Chippewar. He is an artist, clothing designer, tattoo artist, entrepreneur, and he is also an ideas farmer. He's his artwork has been on billboards, and he is shining a light on indigenous topics throughout this country. So thank you so much, uh, Jay Soul, for being here with us today, man. Thanks for having me. First, I want to I wanna start off by, you know, paying homage to the creator for this moment in time for us to connect. There's a lot of things going on in the world, and uh, I'm very appreciative that you're willing to join us on this No Blueprint session. I think it's, it's still very important for us to share these stories and, and provide a space where we can have a positive opportunity to share, you know, where you've come from and supporting an Afro-Indigenous platform. But uh, I want to just thank the creator for our health and well-being. And uh, pray for all those who are, you know, unfortunately less, less fortunate than us. So uh, again, thank you and thank the creator for being here. I appreciate that. I want to pay homage to the land. I'm here on the traditional territory of the Algonquin people. So shout out to our relatives here. I also want to thank our audience for tuning in. You know, that was a big part of, of this uh, conversation is, you know, there with all the news that is going on, I think that this is still an important opportunity to have that positive space for people to tune into something a little bit different. Um, so I want to make sure that I, I thank all of our guests for tuning in and uh, thank you, Jay soul. I mean, a big part of our conversation before, um, you know, going live is that there was a hesitation to making sure that we're not taking up too much space uh, during this black lives matter. So I want you to know how much I respect you for bringing that up and uh, how important that is. So I appreciate your, your perspective, your point of view, and your support to the Black Lives Matter. I mean, the situation is devastating. And uh, I just want you to know how, how uh, appreciative I am for you to continue to still be here with us, man. So thank you yeah. for that. So on that note, I mean, how are you doing through COVID? And is there anything that you want to share considering this Black Lives Matter situation? Well, something quite interesting happened today, actually, to do with, I, I believe, possibly to do with Black Lives Matter. Is, um, I live, uh, my, my, my storefront is on Queen Street West, um, and I live in Queen Street West area as well. So I was actually driving home, and as I was driving down Queen Street going west, almost just past, well, just past Ossington, through the corner of my eye, I clocked this big pallet of bricks on the side of the road. And I was like, yo, what the shit? And I like pulled over real quick. And I'm like, um, I wonder if that has anything to do with what they've been doing in New York City and what they've been doing in other cities around the US, leaving these pallets of bricks. So I jumped out of my van, I ran up to the storefront and, and you know, they were building there. I asked, I said, is this your pile of bricks? What are you guys doing with this? He goes, oh, no, no, we, we have some going in here. It's like Eastern European accent. They're going inside here. I was like, okay, as long as that's where they're going, it's cool. And so I was like, whatever, and I left. Um, and then right before uh, I was leaving my house to drive up to my warehouse, um, I got a message from some friends saying, yo, like, I really hope you're boarding up your storefront because there's all these groups, uh, messages about these groups who are planning on coming into the city to uh, cause trouble during, during the peaceful protest. And um, so, you know, right, and, and then someone sent, and then within that conversation, they sent me a, a screen capture picture of exactly where I had stopped probably an hour and a half earlier at Queen and Ossington, where that pallet of bricks was. So 
you know, I jumped, you know, coming up to my studio, um, I jumped on my motorcycle, I ripped past, I, I went out of my way to go back around before coming up here to uh, see if that pallet of bricks was still there. And it wasn't there, but I pulled up, three guys were standing out front. And I said, I asked them, I said, where's that, where'd that pallet of bricks go? Was that you guys, you guys building in here? And uh, they're like, yeah, they're in there. But I'm like, well, you guys know that if I see this shit out here tomorrow, I'm pulling up with my van and I'm taking them all. So don't, you know, don't want to lose your shit don't leave them out because we, we we're, we're watching what's going around and around the country and uh you know we're, we're i'm not i'm not gonna let let you guys leave shit out like that to to provoke uh people to to be violent and smash windows and you know that area in queen west is all independent businesses for the most part corporate america canada started like seeping in slowly and it They've kind of got a slow takeover going on right now. But for the most part, I would say it's like 80% like independent businesses. So, I mean, that was part of the reason I was a little late actually getting here because I took, took that detour to make sure those bricks weren't still there. Honestly, for you to, to share that, I, I want to uh, let you know that I feel like you're really living up to, to your name. And what I mean is that Chippa Warrior you know? you know, and I think for you to be willing to look out for what's going on, for you to be mindful of that, for you to be willing to go out of your way to to protect the community and to protect the storefronts and the people, uh, I got to give you so much respect and and love for that, my man. I think that's uh, that's really important for your for people to to understand that. You know, if we work together, we can make this uh, a safer, better place for our, our community and for the people. So thank you for doing your part. Honestly, Jay. So, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, a, I, I don't, I'm not really bothered when I see like huge corporate businesses getting getting hurt. You know, that, do, that doesn't bother me. But when I see like small businesses in my in my neighborhood who could possibly be affected by that, that really bothers me. It really, that really hurts me because those people, you know, they work really hard. And what, what COVID has shown us that most small businesses in Canada, the United States are literally a, a, a month to three months away from folding at any given time, whether it's COVID or any other reason. So, it, it, you know, it's not the same. Um, they don't have the same issues um, as like a lot of these big corporate brands have, right? They can have a losing storefront in, in a neighborhood and, you know, that's okay to them. You know, they, they're able to write that off. They're able to write off all their merch and all the things they're getting made over and overseas that are costing pennies on the dollar. You know, in my neighborhood, it's a lot of independent artists. It's a lot of independent businesses, bars, restaurants, cafes, clothing stores, independent boutiques, record shops. I mean, it's, you know, Queen West, right? So where past Bathurst, or um, sorry, past Queen and Spadina on the west side of Spadina, going all the way down into Parkdale, I would say a good a higher percent, I would say more like around 70% these days is all independent small business for the most part, not corporate Canada, not corporate America. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we got to look out for our, for our neighbors like that. Exactly. How, how have you been able to pivot during these COVID times? Like, how are you sustaining yourself during this quarantine? Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's been definitely been difficult. Um, I would say it's, what's been the biggest challenge for me is like maybe staying, uh, um, you know, mentally strong through it. It's really difficult. I mean, I suffer from really high anxiety. I'm really, for, honestly, outside of my artwork, I'm pretty antisocial. I'm a bit of an introvert. Um, 
most people who meet me wouldn't really think that when they see me out on the power trail at events, I could be like pretty outgoing. I could talk to anyone, but really only within that setting, I feel um, outside of that. I'm, I don't really socialize a lot and I, I sure as fuck hate like small talk. Mm. So I try to avoid humans to avoid small talk. So I don't have to have trivial conversations and you know, um, just shit conversations really, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not into it. So, um, but for me, I guess that's been the biggest challenge is, is really trying to stay mentally positive, uh, be supportive of my friends and family and, um, you know, took up gardening. Uh, I went a bit nuts on some gardening and yeah, yes. I mean, still doing, do, doing artwork and still managing my online store and, um, haven't been really painting. I just haven't really felt like, painting and um I'm, I'm think feel like i'm ready to get back into it though and yeah man i'm just uh just trying to trying to keep mentally positive and trying to eat better and uh you know exercise more and just it's been a good break actually of just you know being able to kind of sit back and not have to be at a ton of events and art events and powwows and um so all the teaching gigs that i do and school gigs and it's it's been a good break Nice. Um, I think you're bringing up an important topic that I've been really enjoying uh, having a discussion is about mental health. And, you know, considering what you shared about your mental health, what are some of the things that you do to find that balance through difficult times, especially considering, uh, you know, this quarantine and the fast pace of how our industry can get? How do you find your balance and how do you maintain your mental health? I think, you know, I would say like mostly through my artwork. I mean, I started doing art as a means of therapy. Like um, when I started painting um, and doing, doing the work that I'm doing now, it was, it was for, uh, it was for therapy. It was, I, I was super depressed. Um, I was having like, you know, crazy anxiety. And uh, I don't know how I, I ended up finding something about like how art um, helps heal people. I'd, uh, at the time, I'd gone through a couple of really traumatic experiences, kind of like back to back. And I just started painting. And immediately when I started painting, um, you know, I just felt this anxiety lift. I, I, I found this new focus. Um, so for me, that's, that's always, you know, even in these times, that's always been a huge help. It's always been sort of what um, really helped, keeps me, uh, you know, mentally stable. Um, and, you know, like I said, I took up, I took up doing some like gardening you know um it ended up you know over the years i've had like a couple couple tomato plants and a few herbs and basil and a few other things like right now i have a farm happening on my rooftop uh patio you know i, I have I'm, I'm pretty uh privileged to have a pretty big rooftop patio uh with a south facing all south facing so i get the sun all day and i have man i can't even list them all but i've got at least like almost 30 different plants right now wow. um, that I'm tending to, I'm watering. I'm like, I nerd art hardcore when I, when I try to learn something new. So I've been like studying on fertilization and on like pruning and the right soil. I mean, you name it, man. I, when I get into something, I like go so hard deep into it. And I, I find that's like a great way to just like refocus my energy. And then the, just the joy and, and, the excitement I feel when I go out to my garden and I see, you know, it's been three weeks and my tomato plants come up this big and then I've done all these little pruning tricks to kind of make the plant grow better. And then yesterday, actually, I harvested 
my first uh, my first batch of spinach. Nice arugula and uh, red leaf lettuce, uh, red leaf lettuce, and like a green leaf lettuce, and a huge pile of curly parsley. And I was like, "Holy wow. shit, man, this is so rad!" And it was like I'm sitting here just thinking, like, "Okay, that's a shitload of parsley. What can I make with that all in one go?" So I'm gonna make some tabbouleh out of that, and wow. just yeah, man, it's just that's been a huge that even more so than art for me right now. And, you know, in the past like six weeks, I've been um, like, you know, huge, huge in, in helping balancing my mental health because getting up, checking the first thing I do is I go out and I check on the plants. I'm checking, I'm going out and having my breakfast with them mm. and just chilling and hanging. And then I go check in them on at night. And then before I go to sleep at night, I'm checking the plants to make sure there's no pests. And then I'm watering and saying nice things to them. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a huge, huge help. Amazing. Um, I can actually feel the positivity in what you're just sharing, and it kind of lifted my spirit as well. I relate to you. Like just last weekend, I ended up framing my garden outside. I planted some lettuce and some bok choy myself, and then I built two raised bed gardens so that just I'm, I'm in a condo and there's so much that I can plant in the ground itself. So I figured I'd just build some raised bed gardens and plant some stuff that way, whatever deep rooted vegetables that I want to plant. And that's kind of a, a, a kind of goal that I want to go down to. It's really helping me reconnect with the land. And what I've been really trying to do at the same time is every time I'm, I'm planting a seed, I'm also being intentional about setting a goal. Right. And and kind of projecting what that looks like over time, the growth of that plant and the growth of that goal. How can they meet in the middle? And it's just kind of a spiritual aspect of, you know, connecting to the land and how the land can give something back. I think gardening is a great way to find mental health, even if it's one plant in your house and you're nurturing that plant and you're watering it. And uh, speaking of speaking to your plants, um, I was uh, being made fun of by I have a roommate who lives here. And uh, they came home one time and they thought I was on the phone with a female because they heard me talking to my plant like, oh, it's so beautiful. It just sprouted. And I was like complimenting. I'm like, welcome to the world. Like, how are you doing? And I'm like really having a conversation with my plants. But that connection is so real. And uh, I think it makes a huge difference. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that as an aspect of your mental health. I think that's really important. So yeah, some, something really cool happened actually from out of that is because how my complex is, it's a, like a townhouse complex and the neighbors who are kind of across where their patio is or their rooftop patio is, they've seen my farm and they've started jumping on it. And then the guy next to me, oh wow, you know, he's popping his head over and we're talking, you know, cause I've lived in the same spot, you know, about five years now. So I know the guy next to me and his family and he's gone and like, gone bonkers and got a whole bunch of plants now and i've been teaching them all the stuff i've been uh learning on and you know how to prune them and how to get uh better growth and how to encourage more more flower which is going to make more fruit um but yeah maybe one thing i could recommend to you is um I've, i'm growing in grow bags and grow bags and you know like i was saying i nerd out on this shit so i research hard and the grow bags are really amazing because what they are is they're, they're fabric bags and they're designed um, so that you can, so you can grow in pots instead of using like traditional pots or like a raised bed. And what these, what these grow bags do is they allow uh, more oxygen to go through oh, wow. uh, the bed because they're fabric. Um, and they also drain a little bit quicker. Mm. Um, so it takes a little bit more. You got to sort of watch them to make sure you're, you're watering enough. 
Um, but the way to mitigate that is you just throw a, a mulch on top. Okay. Um, so, that, you know, but they're amazing and they're really cheap and they're cheaper than get buying like the traditional uh, uh, containers that you would grow in. I mean, they're not plastic, which is rad. And they've got, you know, they're just, they're just fantastic. But in saying that, it's just like me doing that inspired my next door neighbor to go bonkers amazing. and get a whole bunch more. Um, and then take all that knowledge I've been gaining and pass it on to him and then see the neighbor across, you know, doing the same thing after they've seen mine. It's like slowly they keep kind of adding more and more and they just, you know, that I can see them. They're at home as well. The guy next door is at home and, you know, it just, you, you can see those little things that like something as positive as getting your hands into the dirt totally. and passing that knowledge on and sharing it. it, it for me, that was uh, really interesting to, to see that happen. Man, that makes so much sense. I mean, that's part of the reason why I took it on this season. Like, I've always wanted to start a garden, but I have three new neighbors that just moved into the condo beside me, and they, like, they made their front lawn look nice. And I was like, I can't have my lawn looking all shaggy and whatever. So I had to step my game up and that just kind of inspired me to finally get down to, to gardening. And so that ripple effect and inspiring others, I think is, is an amazing thing to point out. And when we're doing good, it does ripple effect out into the world. So I appreciate that. I wanted to take a step back if I can, Jay Soul, um, just because I want to make sure that our, our listeners kind of get a really strong sense of, of who you are and where you come from. So if you're open to it, what was your life like, uh, your family life like growing up as a, as a young person? Um, well, I was part of the 60 Scoop. In 1981, I was forcibly removed from my mother, who's Chippewa. Um, essentially, uh, myself and my two siblings were taken away from my mom. Um, they basically put a gun to her head and said either put them up for adoption or uh, they um, uh, will make them uh, crown wards of the CAS and we'll split them up. So, you know, that scared the shit ever. I was uh, four going into five, my older brother seven, my youngest brother was about three. And so the thought of us being split up uh, devastated her. And so she agreed to adoption on the stipulation that we'd all stay together. and. Fortunately, we, uh, we, we ended up going into the same home. Um, I wouldn't say that it was a, it was a you know, it was a, a great life. There was a, a lot of shitty things happened in that household. I left there when I was 15 years old. Um, I kept running away. So I ended up in like, a, back into the foster care system. And then back then you aged out at 16. Um, so as soon as I hit 16, the CAS, because I was, you know, a bit of a punk and I was, wasn't following the rules, they kind of like kicked me to the curb. So, you know, that I, I spent around, um, about, I guess I was about less than a year in, in, uh, cause I would have been like February in, in February when I left my parents' house at 15. And then it was, uh, yeah, it was about, Less than a year I was there and then, yeah, I got kicked to the curb. So basically from the age of 16, I've been on my own. Um, you know, I had a, had a rough, had a rough time a lot, in a lot of ways, like a lot of other, uh, you know, young people who are, you know, don't have any, uh, any, any support. I ended up on the street for a good four or five years. Um, and, you know, my, I always admittedly say it was a choice Four years of that was a conscious choice for me to live on the streets. 
I chose to live on the streets. Um, I came from like a, you know, middle-class home, um, you know, decently educated. Um, but I chose, there was just something in me that I just fucking hated participating in society in any, any sort of way, whether it meant like going to school, whether it meant having a job, holding an apartment, holding responsibility. So I chose, I chose to live on the streets for a long time. Um, and then one day I just sort of just said, okay, fuck it. I'm done with this. And, uh, my buddy moved, uh, moved to Toronto and says, yo, I'm going to get an apartment, man. You want to take one of the rooms? I'm yeah, cool. And then, uh, he came home one night and said, Oh, I got a job at this pub. Uh, they're looking for more barbacks. You want a job? I'm like, eh, okay, fuck it. I'll take a job. And from there, that sort of like, just kind of like changed my life, you know, just made a conscious decision to not participate and then made a conscious decision to participate. And then, um, yeah, it wasn't long after that, that I sort of kind of fell backwards into the tattoo industry. And I think, the tattoo industry, you know, I've been in the tattoo industry now about like 20 years, almost 19 years. Um, and I would say the tattoo industry completely changed and saved my life because it's the most counterculture job I think mm. you can have other than being like a rock star and, you know, a musician in that sort of sense. Um, it's really counterculture. You can travel around the world. I was able to travel the world on that job. Um, and you know, for me, it, it was, you know, really life changing to be able to kind of like, again, it was something I just sort of asked backwards into, um, I was actually working in a surf shop in, in Daytona, Florida, and my friend left the shop and was like, her boss came looking for him and was like, oh, I'm, you know, I just let, where, where Danielle go? And I'm like, ah, oh, she fucked off to California. And he's like, well, shit. Um, she tells me you're good in sales. You want a job? I'm like, yeah, all right. Goes, you got to learn to pierce though. I'm like, do body pierce. I'm like, yeah, okay, I can, I can handle that. And you know, that, that was it, man. And um, I worked around six years as a body piercer primarily. And then after six years, I started apprenticing as a tattoo artist. And that's kind of what brought me into uh, arts and visual art. I mean, that dude is like the fucking nutshell version. There's not like of so much more within that, but that's like condensed way up, you know? Right. I mean, like, I, I relate to you in the sense of moving out at a young age. I moved out when I was 16, um, and I'm born and raised in Winnipeg. And where I moved out was, like, the hood of Winnipeg between Spence and Young Street. So anybody who's been to Winnipeg knows that's one of the hoods in Winnipeg. And uh, it wasn't, if it wasn't for my music as a way to channel and express myself and tell my truth and share my story, I don't know where I would be today, to be honest. So I just relate to that story of, you know, moving out young and trying to find yourself. And I just feel grateful that I, I had a medium like art to, and music to express myself. So I, I think it's admirable, you know, and, and I'm, I'm happy that tattooing has really been a part of your life and art has really influenced that kind of journey for you. So I think that's incredible. If you don't mind, um, I'm going to continue to kind of ask a question about some of your family history. I just think part of what I'm trying to do here with no blueprint is shed a light on the human being behind all of the art and all the things that people see in the front end, because I think it's really important to humanize that experience to allow other people who might be tuning in and listening, who want to start a career in the arts and uh, realize if they can relate to any parts of our story that they can do it too, considering they might be against all odds. So I came across a, a photo on your Instagram 
And it stood out, of course, because it, you know, your Instagram's full of all of your incredible art, but it's a picture where you're actually sharing a hug with your biological mother. And so I wanted to ask you, what was that moment like to reconnect? And has that influenced your art in some way or fashion? I mean, it's first and foremost, it's, it's completely influenced my art and, and really um, changed, changed my life. I met her uh, at the time when I reconnected with her. I was living on the streets in Toronto and uh, I was spending a lot of time at a, at a drop-in center that was on uh, Young Street, Young and College. It was Native Child Family Services and it used to be in the basement. Um, so I'd go there and I'd do like some of their programming. You could go there, get a meal. Um, you could go hang out. You could use the phones. And, you know, I got to know a lot of the staff back then. And uh, actually Steve Teakins, who runs um, uh, NAMI Res back then, he was a counselor way back then. Uh, I think he was really just kind of like starting out. He, you know, he's really, really new to it back then. Um, but, you know, I knew Steve from back then, and uh, I connected with uh, one of the counselors there uh, named Joanne. And Joanne actually was from the same reserve I come from, except she's on the Delaware side. So Delaware, where my reserve is like Chippewa, Oneida, Delaware. And Delaware is kind of just like dab in the middle of our res. And so she was actually a Delaware member. And... Uh, she went, she actually at the time she she helped well, guided me to be, uh, getting my status card so while I was at I didn't have ID and so she helped me get my ID and get my status card um, just you know I had never applied for it I'd never gone to fill out the paperwork so she helped me with all that and during that process I got just telling her about my story and where I came from and um, you know, she says, well, you know, we could find out if you're, if you're uh, where your mother is, uh, if, if she's still alive or where she's at, because if she put her name onto the registry, uh, we, we could help you find her. So, yeah, I mean, it, I remember we just filled out the paperwork. And at the time, I was super transient. I was going between Toronto, uh, back to Kingston, to, to Windsor. I was going, I, I, we hitchhiked out to Vancouver. I was all over the place. So, you know, like most drop-in centers, you go, you go and do some paperwork and then you forget about shit. And then one day I just kind of like popped in. Joanna was like, Jay, where have you been? I haven't seen you. Um, you know, it'd been many, many months since I had popped in. And uh, she was, I, I, have, I have the paperwork from your mom. Your, your, your mom is registered and she's uh, written some letters. So my mom had uh, written me some letters and, you know, they gave me the letters and, um, you know, I read through them and yeah, I just like, I ended up calling her, um, I don't know, not, not long after we spoke on the phone and then, and then uh, at the time she was living in P Peterborough um, and I ended up going down to Peterborough and, and, and meeting her. Um, wasn't really a great experience. I don't want to get too much into it. Uh, the, no the initial meeting um even our relationship with her was like really difficult um she suffered from mental health issues substance issues depression um so it was really hard we you know we, we you know we it was hard it was definitely difficult for us but uh my two siblings weren't able to connect with her in a way that that i was i'm a lot more forgiving i'm, I'm a lot more kinder and gentler whereas they're a little more hard um and uh we were able to maintain a relationship uh, off and on over the years, but it, it was difficult. It was really, really difficult to uh, um, to maintain that with her, just of, of 
because of her issues and I, and of course my, my own issues and being transient and um, that sort of thing. But yeah, um, un unfortunately she passed about three, three years ago but, um, and I miss her. Respect. Man. A lot. I appreciate you sharing that for real. Yeah. And with you sharing that, I want to acknowledge your resilience, man. And having this opportunity for you to share your truth like that, I'm, I'm very grateful for because I think our young people, um, it's a great reminder of how strong we can be, of the resilience we have. And you've been able to take such a, uh, a challenging past, challenging history, and turn it into some incredible art. You're an entrepreneur, t tattoo artist. You've inspired people. I mean, I can take this back to uh, one of your art pieces that you had on a billboard and just describe how educational, impactful your artwork is. Even for me, when I was researching your career and looking at some of the things you've accomplished, that piece where you um, put up on, I think it was Richmond and Spadina, where you had money received by First Nations are not tax dollars. They come from land and resources treaty, federal controlled trust funds. That educated me even as an indigenous person to make that clear connection of where those dollars come from. And why was that important for you to make? I mean, I understand the statement you're making, but I'm, I'm tying in your resilience of your story and how that's translated into your art. So why was that an important piece for you to do? Well, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people don't understand or know the story behind that art piece. Um, you know, and I'll try to keep it quick, the short version of it, but essentially I was driving one day and um, it was just after the acquittal of the, the murder uh, the man who murdered uh, Colton Bushy, um, he was acquitted. And so on CBC radio, uh, Duncan McHugh, um, who I don't know if you know his show, it's every Sunday, Cross Country Checkup. Um, it's a call-in show and they discuss different topics. People get to call in and voice their opinions. And that Sunday they were discussing the, the acquittal of Gerard Stanley for the murder of Colton Bushy. And Right as I tuned in, I caught sort of the last tail end of the last speaker. And then Duncan took the next caller. And this next caller just kind of went off. And, you know, he had sort of like a, you know, old man twang, country twang to him. And he says, you know, well, what we got to do is we got to uh, stop using tax dollars on these Indians. And, you know, if they could go get jobs and they had jobs, they could look after the women and family. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm having one of those moments driving. I'm fucking gripping the wheel. I'm like, fuck you. And I'm like yelling at the, at yeah. the radio. People driving around me must have thought I was crazy. And that just really pissed me off. I was just like, like I, I've dealt with racism directed towards me as a young guy in Kingston. It's Kingston, Ontario is where my mm. adopted family lived. And it's, it's, it's like 99% white, middle class for the most part. Um, and, uh, I dealt with racism like that before I, I in Kingston, I've, I've literally had gotten into fights and brawls with people because of that, um, about the whole tax dollar issue. And, um, anyway, so, you know, hearing him say that and then combining with my own lived experience, you know, I, I sort of just had this moment where I was like, fuck, man, I got to think of a way to sort of like put this message out there so people understand where exactly it comes from. And then the thing was, is that took around like six weeks of research and my own time and energy mm -hmm. to figure that out. I spoke to a, a chief, the chief of Ontario at the time. 
I spoke to the uh, regional chief of Quebec because I was, during that six weeks, I was in Montreal at a youth summit, Indigenous Youth Summit. I spoke to Romeo Saganash, who is a, 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 an, M, you know, an MP. Um, I spoke to uh, a policy analyst, uh, Russ Dibo. Um, I spoke to the chief wow, on my man. reserve. And it took me six weeks of like talking to all these different people to find out, okay, like where does this money come from? Yeah. And the interesting thing that happened was that each one of those people all had variants of the same story to tell. It was just kind of like framed a little bit slightly different. But at the end of the day, it came down to none of the monies used come from tax dollars. And, and when you think about racism towards indigenous people, it, it trickles down because of that institutional racism. And, and the funniest shit happened is during that six weeks, um, I think it's around like March or so, they announced the new federal budget. And so again, you know, I'm, for the most part I, in my car, I like listen to talk radio, I'm a bit of a nerd like that. And so I'm, for the most part, have it locked uh, to, to CBC. And so you heard the commercial where they say, we're, they're gonna announce the next federal budget. So I was like, curious, I'm gonna listen to this. And of course, lo and behold, when they talk about the federal budget, how they worded it to me was like really, it just for me cemented what I was about to do was that much uh, that it needed to be done because the radio announcer or whatever you host or whatever who was announcing it says, well, uh, the federal government has uh, released its budget saying they're going to increase funding for First Nations housing. They're going to increase funding for First Nations education. Um, they're also going to increase funding for uh, seniors' um, drug plans or some shit. And they sort of they just kind of rhymed off. And I was like, exactly. This is why that systemic racism happens towards Indigenous people when it comes to that whole, uh, you know, we got to stop paying for the, for the Indian shit. Mm. Um, is because um, the, the way in which the government words that leads people to believe by using the word funding, mm. the word, the definition of funding of how that is, it comes, it, it gives the perception that it is, it is free money that is, is, you know, um, being given or take or from the tax dollars. And it's not, and that's why on that billboard I use hashtag not funding because right. I think it was hugely important to under, for, for uh, non-Indigenous, but even Indigenous, because a lot of the comments I had on through Facebook and Instagram were like, holy shit, I didn't know that. And, and they were Indigenous. So I was like, I didn't know. It, it took me, like I said, six weeks to, to get right. to that. So, you know, just impulse too. Like I'm an impulsive guy. I'm an impulsive artist. When I get an idea, I just sort of do it. But I like to take the time and energy to research things and to know what I'm doing. And it really can be troll-proof because I've done, I've been involved in other stuff and I've been trolled. I've gotten hate mail. So I wanted to make sure it was troll proof. And the, the most amazing thing mm. happened is on that Facebook post, here and there trolls happen, but I didn't even have to address it because for the most part, people will like the indigenous community was just like shutting them down. Right. And they literally would just troll it with some like really stupid shit really quick. And then, and then uh, they would have no comeback mm. because I, may, I wanted to design that in a way that it was troll. You couldn't argue with it right? It was like factual based. That's so significant, man. I need to, I need to really just highlight a lot of what you're sharing. You take your history of your past of where you come from, translate that into art, intentionally understand, you know, some of the topics that are, are in your life that 
means something, do the research, and you put it into your art. And as a result, whether it's conscious or not conscious, the impact is a ripple effect in actually helping the rest of the community and the world around you make that positive change. All the things you discussed is no simple task, but the fact that you channeled a lot of that, that hurt and a lot of that energy that you needed to get out and put it into a positive outlet, I think is a strong sign of your resilience and a strong example of what resilience can look like. And as a result, not only are you able to make a positive difference in your own life, but you're able to also educate and inform others around you. And I think that's so important to, to highlight and make clear. So I think I, another thing that it made me reflect on is how important that is in regards to appreciating people's art, you know, specifically yourself and artists who are very intentional with their art pieces is that this, in, in some circumstances, it's not just something we're doing for fun and, you know what I mean? It's romanticized and we're making this thing look pretty because we think it's cool and want to put it up on our wall and make some money. A lot of the time, these art pieces are intentional to uh, create a conversation, to create education and awareness of certain things and make a positive impact. So I, I hope that our listeners are, are, are grasping that art is in your art specifically has a really powerful intention behind it to educate and to create positive impact, but as well as an expression of your life journey. I think that's incredible, man. Well, for me, my art is all about my, my healing journey and reconnecting with my community and my family. Um, you know, growing up for the, you know, from the age of five to, to 15 and, you know, sort of middle-class home, um, you know, I had a lot of privilege growing up and I still have a lot of privilege being, you know, what would be considered white passing, right? I'm a mix of uh, Chippewa and, and Lebanese. My mother's Chippewa, my father's Lebanese. So, you know, as, as a white passing male, um, you know, I have a lot of privilege that I still carry. So I feel that, um, I don't know if it, what it is that sort of drives me. I know it's my own healing journey, journey but I feel like I, I have um, something in me that just uh, drives me to, to try to educate other people and, um, and really at the same time is really, really educate myself and, and, and really help, help me on my own healing journey. Um, you know, to be able to speak to an artist, I think is, is so inspiring for me. Um, I'm not necessarily a artist, painter, visual artist myself, but to hear the stories from an artist and how their art is an extension of who they are and how that has created, you know, inspiration um, throughout the community, I find so inspiring. Um, so I'm incredibly grateful for this moment, for this No Blueprint uh, podcast to be able to shed light on such an incredible artist like Jay Soul and how he's been able to take his story of his upbringing and put that into something positive. And I really think that this entire conversation is now an amazing example of resilience and how uh, inspiring it is to, to hear your stories and how you've been able to translate that into you know, a form of your resilience, man, and overcoming some of those challenges. So I appreciate everything that you're doing um, with your art, Jay Soul. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible. So if we could maybe back up a little bit, explain to us a little bit of, of Chippewa and where that name came from. Um, you know, growing up, are uh, coming from uh, the tattoo industry background is, you know, at the, um, 
a lot of uh, street artists and tattoo artists and you know guys I knew in the industry um, would publish their art under kind of like pseudonames or uh, anonymous anonymous names and you know I always I always sort of admired that and I thought you know J Soul is kind of just a boring ass name so I thought what if you know I was going to publish my artwork what would uh, what would I what would I publish my work under and um, you know, I just, I started brainstorming and kind of just made a sandwich out of uh, being Chippewa and, and Warrior and just kind of fused Chippewa and Warrior and that's how I came up with Chippewa War. Um, I mean, it's kind of, it talks a bit too about just, you know, the, you know, our people, Indigenous people have been at war for 500 years. Mm. So I, I think it's sort of, uh, I thought it was sort of fitting and then it just sort of worked. And nice. Yeah, kind of stuck with it. You know, I, I think one of the other things I'd love to, to highlight about your story is that you've had a brick and mortar location for a long time and you're in your second location. Is that right? No, um, I've, I've had a brick and mortar store for about 15 years, actually. Okay. Um, originally, I started off as a tat, just, a, just solely a tattoo shop. Um, I ran that just solely as a tattoo shop for the last uh, ten, well, for about nine, ten years. And then the last five or so, I've just been running it as my uh, as my storefront Chippewar. Um, but you know, over the years, I've had you know good handful of storefronts. Um, it hasn't been in just in one location. Uh, you know, as your leases expire or you know you're dealing with slumlords, sometimes you got to move. Um, so yeah, the, where where I'm at now at Queen Street West, I've been in that location now going on four years. Um, a lot of challenges in in running a running any business and I think something you know that you sort of touched on of just um, earlier is just like inspiring people to sort of like go out there and and to make shit happen but to understand for me um, you know that was a you know that even before I opened the store that was like a good I spent probably six years from the moment in the first tattoo shop I went into I started plotting doing this. I started drawing the blueprint of what my shop would look like. And the craziest shit happened is that when I opened my first shop, I literally would walk into a space, be able to look around and go, no, it's not going to work because I had drawn this blueprint and really poorly just on like a plain piece of paper. I knew where the chairs are going. I knew where the sink was going. I knew where the waiting area was going. So I was able to walk into a space and assess it really quick and go, no, it's not going to work. And I could walk out. Um, but when I found that space for my first shop, I walked in and went, oh shit. Yeah, this is a square. I just wanted to like a plain square and it gave me a, a clear blueprint to do what I wanted to do. And then the craziest thing is I designed it exactly to that like first drawing. Wow. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't overnight. It took, you know, six years of plotting because also in between that I was researching on, you know, where do you get your, the, all the fixtures to put into the shop. I started researching that. I mean, it took, it, it was a lot, a lot of work. And then even when I opened that first shop, I was something that was supposed to cost $25,000 ended up costing over $75,000. Wow. Um, I was uh, literally on the brink of failure if I didn't figure something out within that, within like a matter of weeks because I had spent six months, over six, seven months actually renovating and getting a space ready when it should have been like, boom. 
um, I was just underprepared. I just wasn't ready. And um, fortunately, I, I had a, a, someone step in and uh, I was telling them um, about my, the situation I was going through. And then like a week later, I got a check in the mail and that I was not expecting. If it wasn't wow. for that check in the mail, I would have, I would have been out 75 grand. And all of that 75 grand uh, was all borrowed money uh, from actually different friends and family had, had, lent, had lent me that money. Um, I was fortunate enough to get to get loans through a, a business development corporation on, on my reserve. I would encourage any young on indigenous entrepreneurs who want to get into doing business or, or want their own business, um, that there are resources available um, like business development programs uh, and business development banks in your communities. Um, and if they're not, uh, most of these, if they're not in your communities, um, you know, they, they'll fund indigenous, uh, indigenous biz, uh, business and entrepreneurs. So um, that's a whole process in itself, though. Like I had to, I had to write a business plan. I, I have a grade nine education. I had to hire a consulting company to write that business plan for me. That cost me $5,000 wow. to write that business plan. Um, you know, I, I know now there's resources back then. It was a little different. I know there's a lot more resources to get things like that done, but I mean, my journey has not been easy. There's been a lot of, a lot of struggle, a lot of, uh, a lot of failure even in between that. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't ever want to like perceive that, you know, like I got shit made because I don't, man, I still struggle like everybody else. And, mm. um, it's a constant hustle to keep, keep going and doing what I do. I respect that. I respect that grit, you know, and that grind, that hustle, that determination, um, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I really feel like you're reminding me of something that um, has been guiding me throughout my journey in uh, trying to be successful in as an artist myself, is that when you find that vision and when you find that sense of purpose, it has to be so deep and so important for you that it has to be more important than the struggle to get there. And when you sure. find that, when you find that purpose, hold on to it because the struggle becomes worth it in the end. I mean, you're now sitting in your storefront and your in your location. And uh, that was kind of one of the next questions I wanted to, to ask you is how has, um, you know, operating a diversified storefront? I mean, you know, not only have your art there, but you also have your clothing line. Uh, you also have your tattoo parlor. How has diversifying your storefront helped you build a sustainable career as an artist? Well, you know, one, one thing that before I answer that, I just yeah. touch on is like to understand that even though when you're thinking about these things and you have all this drive and um, all this vision to try to do what you do, um, it's okay that that vision changes because, you know, like I said, over the last five years, for the most part, I've left tattooing. Like I don't tattoo a lot anymore. And for, uh, you know, I've been working really hard over the last five years to transition out of tattooing. You know, I spent, you know, I spent 15 years grinding in, in, in tattoo shops and I, I sort of got tired of it. Um, and that's, I, I think a lot of people need to understand that, that that's okay. Your vision of what you're doing is going to change. And all the, all the struggle that I went through, all the years plotting um, to go through that and then just kick it to the curb, you know, you need to understand that's okay to do that. Like you, as a person, you're growing, you're evolving, you're changing, you're trying new things. And for me, that's been about what my artwork's been about. It's just been like finding myself uh, and trying new things. And it's why I paint between many different styles and many, uh, a lot of different content. And, um, 
you know, the things I do with clothing and the billboards and, and the stuff I do with minimalist art, the stuff I do with the movie posters, the, the safe shit that I do, um, mural work, teaching. I mean, the only way I think as an artist you're going to make it this day and age is that you have to, you have to be really, really diverse. I know a lot of artists and I've known uh, a lot of artists over the years and a lot of them struggle for the reason that for the most part, they're one trick ponies. Mm. They do like one thing and they do it, they do it to death and they don't really explore shit outside of that. So for me, I, I've known that, uh, you know, go, going into business, you know, you, you, if you, this part of your business isn't working, you got to look at why it's not working, what you can do to either change to make it work or change out of it um, and get geared into something else that sort of can all be like, all, all related so you know i think it's important to to know as an artist especially in this climate you have to be diverse um you have to work really hard to be diverse it takes a lot of um um i guess really a, a lot of, of time and energy and researching new things you want to try um and and failing you know i've had a lot of failures over over my career and you know understanding that those failures that i've had are, are education you know, a lot of people go out and spend $100,000 on, on getting an education. I've probably in the last 15 years lost a hundred grand trying new shit in my business or going, trying to venture out into new businesses that didn't work. And I just like pissed that money away. So, you know, I don't know if that really answers it, but I guess it's just be diverse, right? Definitely. I definitely think it answers it. Diversification and um, your craft and what you're passionate about will help you build a sustainable career. If you hone in on one thing, um, that might be the death of you. It may not be necessarily the truth for everybody, but um, in order to build a sustainable career, I think in the arts, it helps to have a diversified portfolio. For sure. I think something important too that you sort of uh, mentioned about like why I do, you know why I do my art and, yes. and for me what is to understand is I do my artwork for me mm. everything that I do first and foremost starts off is because something I've researched or something I'm interested in I think it's really important for young people coming into to art um, especially the youth or, or even uh, older people are getting into art do it for yourself don't do it for anyone else but yourself and if people enjoy it that's fantastic but make it about you don't try to cater to people's shit don't try to cater to to a, a certain style or a certain group or a certain demographic just do something because it's helping you and you enjoy it and you feel good because the moment you start trying to do artwork um and it's not for you um I, you're, you're i think you're going to end up with more pain um and and hardship than if you're just doing it for yourself man that's some that's deep right there and i say that because when you were explaining it it actually reminded me that's that goes back to that therapy art was therapy for you and it goes back to reminding me of my career as an artist that's my therapy and as a result it's actually a form of self-love is that when you do that you're doing it for yourself and as a result when you share it with the world you never know what that could turn into yeah. So. No, and I've, there's been, there's been controversy. There's a lot of controversy within the native arts community about, you know, who people do their artwork for. And at the end of the day, someone posed that question to me a few weeks ago when we were, when this, uh, when we were talking about that. And I said, you know, that's for, for me, my art, that's what it's about. It's about, it's for me. 
I do it for myself. I do it for my healing journey, for my education journey. And if other people get shit out of it, fucking A. But I can't, you know, and, and I will admit, I've done series of work that weren't for me and it's fucking backfired. I got, I got mm. 70 paintings, unsold paintings. Interesting. Probably a good 20 of those are just shit I hate that I did wow. because it's like safe, it's boring wasn't much story it had i feel like there wasn't much intention people like it people enjoying it but for me it's just like i uh, just i'm just not into it and and for me my art needs to say something mm. it, it needs to have a message and, and to be able to share what i've uh, taken the time to educate myself in and you know I, I think it's just hugely important that people understand is do this shit for yourself wow they, I, and i hope it doesn't sound selfish i don't feel like it is i i just feel like that it's far more important um, for you to use your art in that way um, to first and foremost make it about you and, 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 and the, in the hopes that if other people do enjoy it or take something from it, then, you know, that's just the bonus. I think there's nothing self-centered about loving yourself. And when you do that, that's going to help you um, help other people. And I think I honestly feel as though because of the way that it's framed, love yourself, it sounds fluffy or it sounds, yeah. you know, soft but that's actually one of the hardest realest things that you can do is figure out how to do that and as a result i mean when you share that it can make real positive impact in your own life and for others and that's just that's just a default that's kind of a ripple effect so i appreciate you sharing that and speaking of art i was curious um you know I, you shared a lot just now but i was curious about your experience with blood quantum that's a, it's in a recent project. And for those who don't know, Blood Quantum is a, a movie that just recently came out uh, by Jeff Barnaby. Jeff Barnaby is a Mi'kmaq director, writer, composer, and film editor. And Jay Soul's work is part of some of the uh, movie teaser posters. So I wanted to know how you got involved with that project and what was that experience like for you? Um, I don't really remember exactly how it happened. I want to say somehow or another the i want to say it was like the distribution company is the one who got in touch with me originally for that and i don't i don't even recall how um how they found me as i if i recall he said something uh the guy i talked to was just like you know he'd seen my artwork he'd seen the movie poster work that i do and right. thought it'd be rad if i would contribute something for for a teaser poster and um something weird happened is simultaneously while the production company got a hold of me, or not the production company, the distribution company uh, got a hold of me. Simultaneously, someone from TIFF got a hold of me to do a movie poster for something that was happening at TIFF. Um, and I actually thought I was talking to the same people. And so I'm having like one meeting through email, and then I end up having a phone call. And then, like, I think it's all about the same thing. So I ended up actually doing two posters. Uh, one was for TIFF. Um, for their Midnight Madness for the film festival. Um, it went into this little zine they made. And then, yeah, I did the teaser poster uh, for Jeff. And, you know, that was rad, man. Jeff, Jeff is an amazing filmmaker and uh, just a rad dude. And it was, it was you know, a, hu a huge honor to be a part of that. And, um, yeah, it was just, I don't know. The, I, the coolest thing about it was is while I, in order to do the poster, I was like, well, I have no idea what the film's about, what are the images. So I actually got an advanced copy wow. of the film before it came out, even before it's like a uh, launch at TIFF. And Crazy. the copy that I got had no music in it. It had little things like music here. It had like 
you know, insert animation here, this, that, a bunch of other stuff was kind of like through that advanced copy. And um, so it was cool. I ended up actually watching the film, like, I think four times uh, in order to make that um, poster, just because I, you know, that I'm one, I'm a movie nerd. So I just got, got super into it. Um, yeah. And then I went, actually went, and then I went to the, the premiere of it, which was really cool because it was rad to see. It, it was such a different experience uh watching the film again one on the big screen but mm. two with the music because it's so interesting of how music can just set the tone of a scene mm. and that final scene um you know I, you know at, at the end you know with the he's fighting with the katana um that that scene gave me goosebumps dude because because of the music that didn't right. happen the other four times i watched it but with that music and the drums coming in, I was like, whoa, holy fuck, man. It was, it was just really rad. That's amazing. I wanted to, you know, as we wrap this up, man, I wanted to, to reflect a little bit, um, you know, on the first time I met you. I know we're kind of diverging a little bit here, but I think it's just important to share. Like, the first time I met you was at the Polaris Prize Awards that just took place. That was the first time. And I'm reflecting on it because in the beginning of your story sharing here, you just were reflecting of how introverted you are. And if you didn't say, hey, what's up, Jacoda? I don't know if I would have recognized you. I mean, one, it was dark, but it was just, you were in the, in the sections a little bit behind me and I was just kind of walking by and you said something and uh, I was sitting next to you at that point. And I just thought, oh, damn, this is, this is Chippewa right next to me. I thought that was so cool. So I just was reflecting and this was the first time that I crossed paths with you in the flesh. Um, I think that was really epic. But in closing here, man, I'm going to ask you one final question. And that question is, if you can paint a picture of the future, what would that look like to Jaisal? Oh, fuck, man. I don't even know how to answer that, dude. That's, <laughs> I mean, which future are we talking about, right? Mm. Whose future? What future? Mm. Humankind? Animal kind? I don't know, man. Um, Interesting. I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. And that's the thing, even when it comes to, to my work, I, you know, that's the kind of shit, like I got to go sit out and nerd out mm. on and, and really like reflect on and think about. Um, cause you know, most of my work, it takes several drafts to get to where it's something that I like, I, that I could dig and that I would share. Um, see, I don't know, man, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't say, um, it's all good. Yeah, it's, I appreciate that. No, I think but, that's but a good to answer what one to answer something you said about like yeah, meeting man. me in the flesh, dude. The only yeah. way I was able to do that, um, to talk to you there is because that that was art related, bro. That's oh, like in what? an art art setting. It was music, Facts. art, Facts. label, and, and and settings like that. Oh, I see what you're I, saying. I can, now. Like I can get through, you know. I see what you're it's saying. It's outside of that. It's. Uh, you know, and I know your music too, bro. So I just respect. want to say what's up because I'm, I'm a fan of your music. Yo, respect to that, man. It means a lot. Um, I'm I'm so glad I was able to, to connect with you this way, to hear your story. Um, I just respect you and, and the work that you're doing so much more, so much deeper, so much richer. Um, I respect you a lot for taking the time to share your truth and share your story, considering the times that we're in. Um, so I want you to know how much humility I have for your presence here on this No Blueprint series. Uh, I'm really thankful and full of gratitude, man. So thank you for joining us here today. Man. Great to hang, dude. Miigwech for having me. Wash day. And I, I hope that we'll reconnect on another front. And, and I hope that, you know, you travel forward in, in your life in a, in a good way. And I really look forward to crossing paths with you at some point. 
All right, homie. Take care, man. Thanks a lot. You too, man. All right. Peace. Later.